Thank you. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 1, book of Malachi chapter 1. I so appreciate uh, the opportunity Dr. Getch gave uh, for me to speak in chapel today. My wife and I absolutely love uh, the college here and being a part of Lancaster Baptist Church. We came here in 2011, met in college, got graduated, got married right after. We've been serving here ever since, and we absolutely love uh, being a part. And it's a privilege to serve the Lord, isn't it? Let's look at Malachi. We're going to look uh, just at verses 6 through 10, and then we'll jump down to verse 13 as well. Verse 6 reads, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say, The temple of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. In verse 13, ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord. But we come to the nation of Israel here at a dark time in their history. They have now just been released from the Babylonian captivity. If you can think back in your mind, several decades prior to this, Josiah was king of Israel. And under his reign, and y'all can go ahead and be seated, by the way, as we get started. And under his reign, the nation of Israel prospered. They turned back to the Lord. There was a, a period of national revival, and God blessed the people of Israel. But when he passed off the scene, things began to change in the nation. His son, Jehoiachin, took the throne and the nations from the north, Babylon in particular, began to besiege Jerusalem. And during this sieging, this period of brutal attacks against the country, Jehoiachin, he, he was killed. Or Jehoiakim, my mistake there. But he was killed in that siege. His son then, Jehoiachin, takes the throne and he's taken captive. He's carted away to Babylon and for the next 37 years he rots in Babylonian prison. The king is dead. The next king that was just raised up, he's taken captive. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian forces then, they destroy the temple. The story is told in 2 Kings 24, verse 13 and 14. It says, And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained, save the poorest sort of the people of the land. But he wasn't done yet. He had killed the king. He had taken the next king captive. He had destroyed their temple. He goes on in chapter 25 of 2 Kings. He sets up his own king, the king Zedekiah. And this was 
mainly a puppet king set up to just do what Nebuchadnezzar had bidden him to do in the nation of Israel. And Zedekiah rebels against the king Nebuchadnezzar. This infuriates him. And he besieges Jerusalem again. And four months and nine days into that siege, there's no more food. Jerusalem can resist no longer, and the city falls. 2 Kings 25, verse 9, it says, And he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, and every great man's house burnt he with fire, and all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. And this is the time period that Malachi is written in, that they had just gone, thus began a long and brutal 70 years captivity in Babylon, and God sees fit to release his people to go back into the land. And at this time period, Malachi is really, he's writing to a dejected people, a, a people that's tired, they're weary, they're coming back into the land, that their homes and everything that they're familiar with has been burned, it's been destroyed. And yet in this book, God expresses a message to his people, a message of reconciliation, a message of love. This is written the same time frame as Ezra and Nehemiah, about 445 B.C. And the word Malachi, it means my messenger. And it's indicating that this message that God's expressing is from the very heart of God. And he so desires a relationship with his people that he goes to great extents to bring his people back into fellowship with him. Look in verse 2, if you would, Malachi 1-2. He starts this book by saying, I have loved you. It's a funny statement. From the children of Israel's perspective, how could he say that? Israel had just come through a terrible time. Loss of family, loss of friends, loss of national government, loss of their homes. But the children of Israel in this time, they forgot that God was holy as he was loving and God doesn't allow sin to go unpunished. You see, before the time of Josiah, there was a king, Manasseh, that had sat upon the throne. Second Kings 22, Manasseh was king, and he did many abominations before the Lord and caused Israel to sin. He took part child sacrifice, idol worship. He built altars to false gods, did many abominations. In Second Kings 21, 11, God said, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations and hath done wickedly above all the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. God goes on to say, just like a man wipes a dish, I'm going to wipe clean my people. And he doesn't allow sin to go unpunished. The people of God at that time had sin worse in their midst than the unheathen around them. And their testimony for God was non-existent. And God said, I have to punish that. But even through all of the rebellion, and all of the resentment, and all of this welled-up sin that the children of Israel had towards God, he devises a plan to restore them. And much of the minor prophets, they foreshadow Christ's return later uh, in the New Testament, but it also expresses God's heart to restore his people. As Zechariah says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you. That even in this dark time, he desires that relationship with his people. And here in Malachi, what we're looking at tonight, God is expressing some frustrations he has with his relationship to his people. Some fundamental adjustments that he'd like them to make in their service, in their, in their relationship to him. And we're going to look at three of them uh, quickly today. First of all, his people 
as they're coming back into the land, as they're restoring their fellowship with the Lord, God says, these are some things I see in your lives that need to be different. First of all, they lacked an interest in the things of God when God desired their love. Verse 6, it says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. He's giving us an image, an illustration of the right relationship of a son to his father is one of respect, of one of honor, of one of love. The right relationship of a servant to his master is, is similar. There's a respect. There's an honor there. And he says, if I'm truly your father, if I'm truly your master, where is my respect and where is my honor and where is that love that you're supposed to be showing to me? And his people at that time had looked at the things of God and they said, the table of Lord, it's, it's contemptible. We don't use that word often. It means it's hated. It's something to discard. It's something to set aside. It's something that's reprehensible. It's disgusting to the people of God. That was their image of it. Later in the book, they go on to say, behold, it's, it's such a weariness. They're saying in their hearts, it's such a tiring thing to serve the Lord. It's so much work. It's so much energy. I hate doing it. I do it because I have to. I do it out of habit. I do it maybe because of the expectation of someone else on me, but it's not something I enjoy doing. And don't you know that in our Christian lives, God expects the right motive as much as he expects the right action in our lives? And here they lacked an interest in the things of God, and God desired their love. Secondly, the children of God gave God the leftovers, and God desired their best. Verse 8 says, And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? If you're familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial laws, God wanted the most perfect, the most pure, the most spotless lamb to be the one that they chose to offer him. And yet the priest, he's speaking to the priest in this passage, they're choosing the ones that are lame, the ones that are sick, the ones that they wouldn't want to breed out, and the ones they could do with, otherwise do without otherwise and they're giving god the leftovers the leftover energy to do that it it wouldn't require me to sacrifice to give of something that's value uh, that's of value to me and it's interesting to note that the responsibility of god's people wasn't removed because of the circumstances that they were in god's people still they had a responsibility to serve him with their very best even though the situation around them was difficult. It's easy in a time of difficulty to lose our focus on God and to start thinking about our own self, our own needs, our own wants, and that somehow the difficulty in our life makes us an exception. That our passion and soul winning our, or outreach, our personal relationship with God, our fervor in serving is somehow lesser of a priority or that there's a lesser expectation placed on us to a lesser extent because of circumstances or events or, or outside items in our life. But God still expects his best of his people. They lacked an interest in the things of God. God desired their love. They gave God the leftovers. God desired their best. Thirdly, they served God for their own benefit. 
God desires our service to be out of love for him, not out of love for his benefits. Verse 10 says, Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. God's speaking to the priests here, who when they had initially conquered the land of Canaan and became the land of Israel, he hadn't given them a physical inheritance. He said, I'm going to be your inheritance. And with that, he gave them something much more valuable than a piece of property, than a piece of land. And yet now they're more content to serve themselves than to serve God to the point that even the smallest task, that they're expecting something in return. You're not even going to open the door without expecting some money. You're not even going to kindle a fire on my altar without expecting some kind of recognition for serving the Lord. As we close, just three quick questions I want to ask you guys. Consider in your own life, because these are simple truths, these are simple concepts, but in the Christian life, many times it's the simple, basic, fundamental truths that are forgotten, that they're set aside, that something else takes bigger priority, and what we should have been doing all along is nowhere to be found. Thinking through the last several weeks of your time here at college, thinking through perhaps even the last several months back to March. Has your life for Christ been one out of love for him or out of habit? Children of Israel, they got into a pattern in their life where the things of God became habitual, that they began to just be going through the motions, that perhaps there was someone standing next to them that expected them to be doing something, and they were coming in each day and going through the motions because that's what they did, but it wasn't truly out of love for the Lord. Has it become a drudgery in your life to serve the Lord? Question two, can you truly say that you are right now, today, serving God with the very best that you have? Perhaps the circumstances, many times the apathy that we see in the world around us, the situations that come into our lives, many times they cause our passion to wane or for us to be satisfied and to settle for second best or good enough in our lives. But God wants our best. He expects our best. He's so worthy of our best. Thirdly, then, what is our motive? In serving the Lord, what is our motive? Is it a love for God or is it a love for his benefits? Do we serve God for God or we do, do we serve God to get something out of it for ourselves? I heard a story of a man who swept out to sea and uh, he was swept out on a homemade raft. Probably not a smart move. Under pressure of wind and wave, it gives every indication that this raft is it's about to be torn apart. The man on board, he struggles, he's desperate just to try to keep his raft afloat, his, his paddle, he's, he's desperately trying to go back to shore, but nothing is helping. He looks up, and at his last moment, there's a ship that comes alongside, and the crew has thrown him a line and uh, asks him, come on board. And so at once, he gives up what he's trying to do, that's not working, and so he grabs this line and he reaches out to this line that's offered to him. And once he's on board the ship, the storm's still raging. He's so thankful to those that had just saved his life 
But the storm's still raging. There's still work to be done. And the captain asks, hey, are you willing to help us? You're in good health. You're not uh, battered. You're not uh, wounded from the storm. And you're able to help. Would you be willing to help? Now, if this man refuses, no one is <laughs> no one's going to toss him back overboard. right? There's, they're going to be content just for him to come on board and sit. But how much more willing is that man to serve out of gratitude for what's been given to him? When we realize that Christ has literally given his all for us. If you look in the Minor Prophets, much of it is referencing Israel's current time period, but it foreshadows Christ coming and redeeming his people later on as well. When we realize, when we take time to recognize that God has given all for us. The call to Christian service, it's not a call to drudgery. It's not a call to slave-like service. It's a call to willful and loving and passionate service out of gratefulness to our God. And this week, let me encourage you as we're going into finals, let's remember who it is and why it is that we serve. That we serve God with our best. That we serve God with passion and from our hearts. That we don't give him the leftovers. And what a privilege and honor it is to be a part of bringing glory to God through our lives. That he would choose to use us as a part of that process. 